0: Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of my Behind the Music Business podcast. My podcast series, where I talk to an assortment of different music industry professionals, ranging from record labels to music publishing, songwriters to the live industry, anywhere and everywhere to find out who they are, what they do, and what makes them tick. This week, episode 20, is with Gerard Phillips of Young Turks Music Publishing. I met with Gerard in my house in Bristol at the tail end of the summer last year. He had just, literally a few weeks beforehand, started his now current role, Heading up the music publishing arm of Young Turks, the label and management company that you'll know that's behind artists like The XX and FKA Twigs, uh, amongst others. I've known Gerard since he was heading up the UK arm of Songs Publishing, which was a few years back now. Songs is now part of Cobalt Music and Gerard moved on from Songs during the whole process of Cobalt buying the company, something that we talk about in the episode. Gerard is also someone with direct experience of all the EMI shenanigans that went on a few years back when Terra Firma got involved, which I did also get him chatting about, which was really interesting. Uh, We talked about A&R, about working with artists and working with songwriters, A&R from labels and at publishing companies. And he talks quite well and candidly about his interest in music publishing, in working with songwriters, and about why music publishing is the best place for him to be. So, I've rabbited on enough, like always. I'll be back at the end. But for now, here is my conversation with Gerald Phillips of Young Turks Music Publishing. Talk to me about Young Turks.
1: Young Turks is obviously a record label and management company, um, first and foremost, but it's now, we're, my job is to, I'm coming in as the GM of the new publishing venture. Right. So they had a publishing arm before which ran through Beggars, but it was very much um, uh, a kind of an aside to the management and the label. and then. The owner Caius Pawson has been wanting to step into publishing properly and and build a proper publishing company which is where I come in. So I'm helping them to set it up. It runs through it's not part of Beggars anymore, it's gonna run through Sony ATV.
0: Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because the label runs through or is part of the beggars Excel. group of labels. Yeah. But and beggars have a publishing company. Yeah. we touched on this a little bit before we started recording. But this is a separate entity. So how yeah, so does the, how does that kind of fit into the I guess the structure of the overall? Is it just a completely? It's well, it's separate.
1: I mean, I think the the thing about setting up a publishing company when you are record company is it's very difficult to get away from that. You know, there are there are people that have a publishing company in name, and there are people that have a com- a publishing company in in the way they do things and the way they act, mm-hmm. and. Our role here at, at Young Turks is to move away from just being a publishing arm of a record label, where it's very much the the third aspect of what they do, and they don't actually have a lot any sort of real, true publishing staff um, plugging into that. So, and that's the same as a lot of indie labels, which have the publishing arm. You know, because it's just you know in a world where. The money is not as great, especially for the indies and record sales are, are low and you know, streaming doesn't really pay, pay through as much as it can do to, to certain companies. Then the publishing is just another aspect of, of, of grabbing a few more rights sometimes and grabbing a bit more money, but without actually putting anything into it. So Young Turks publishing is, first of all, we're looking to sign stuff that isn't on the label and mm-hmm. isn't part of the management company. And we're looking to build Young Turks as a publishing entity, entity in its own right. Okay. So it's not just, we're just the third part of Young Turks, it's like we're very much a separate part of it. There is there is stuff that we will look at which we manage, sure, of course, I'm sure mm-hmm. in the future, but you know, Young Turks as a company is also very specific um, and doesn't sign much on the label side and doesn't manage that much and is very a, a very kind of curated label. Mm-hmm. We as a publisher will be running alongside that ethos but obviously well, with publishing we have to sign more by definition the, the publishing company needs to sign more to to survive
0: are you <laughs> is it, i mean you're obviously under the, the young turks brand yes. and that's got what well, it's got an identity as a brand very much so yeah is that gonna and um, if you've got a remit to where you have to sign more for the publishing side is that brand identity going to shift it won't shift
1: it will still have to fall in i mean obviously first of all with publishing we'll be looking at writers and producers so that mm-hmm. makes it so they you know writers and producers usually work with various artists and therefore have you know their it's almost like the brand identity doesn't exist yeah and, you know what i mean because you can what you can work with a, a pop act on parlour one week and go in and then go in and sing a songwriter on. On 4AD, the next. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's fine. And then if it, when we're looking at artist signings, and it's got to you know fall into yeah the style. we're not going to be looking to sign Little Mixes publishing anytime soon. But you know we'll, there are there are lots of good acts out there that would fit on the Young Turks model. Um, and I think f- for us, the the dream publishing signing for me has always been one of those acts that has an act, has its own something like a disclosure, the XX, Rudimental, where you have kind of four aspects of what they do and four aspects of, of where you can see a return financially. Okay. On it. So you've got Disclosure, for example, where, or, or Rudimental. Let's look at Rudimental as a prime choice. So you kind of have Rudimental as an act where they do very, very successful. They're very, very successful on the, uh, on the record sales side and mm-hmm. the touring side of things. Then they've got the side projects that come off of Rudimental. Then they've got each and every aspect of each and every producer within Rudimental works on projects where they're just kind of co-writers and you probably wouldn't know about some of the tracks that are on and then you've got obviously the sync side of the business where they obviously have music that lends itself very readily to synchronization mm-hmm. so that's a kind of that's a sort of a dream publishing act for me so yeah, yeah. you know and I think all, all three of those acts that I mentioned obviously the XX is Young Turks but like a disclosure a rudimental they're kind of you know they will all falling well on the publishing side <coughs>
0: you say you're the GM Yes. Is it just you at the moment? Well, it's just me, but we
1: kind of, the Young Turks, we're all in the same office, so I kind of, we have a very large amount of A&R stuff at Mm -hmm. Young Turks, which feeds into... Okay. Which feeds into what I'm So doing. it's going to be used. So it's all, it's all kind of mixed. And in, in all fairness, I'm actually also helping out on the management roster as well and helping to set up sessions okay. for the writers. I mean, on you, you, side
0: it's, a of it's a company of a size where everyone kind of chips in. There's yeah. no point in having a we'll also, be,
1: the, Yeah, and also the other thing about Young Turks is it has its own, you know, we're, we're based on our own out in London Fields, but all of the staff that work in that London Fields space, we've got a studio and, and two office spaces, they're all creative staff. Because mm-hmm. all of the admin side of it, on the label side, is handled through Beggars on the records. In Wandsworth. And then you've got, on the publishing now, we run through Sony ATV. Yep. So that means all of our admin and royalty collection and, and registrations and all that kind of stuff can be handled by Sony ATV. Mm-hmm. So it means that the, uh, the, the staff within Young Turks itself is pretty much all creative. Okay. Yes. Was that your very choice? Disor- very disorganised. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that. Was that A your choice, working with Sony? my choice no 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 that was a deal that was in that was already running with the owner but it makes sense and for me it's a good thing because i come from a independent publishing background where i'd say the one element that was lacking well i'm sure we'll get onto this later but the one element i felt wasn't as strong as it could be was the kind of royalty collection uh or you know, just just collection of, of, publishing monies worldwide and then how that drip feeds back to the writer it can be quite slow if you've got a network of sub-publishers which is what we did whereas if you're part of a major system then you can have what you know with Young Turks it's like you're going to have the independent kind of day-to-day of what Young Turks provides but then on the back end you're going to have Sony ATV and that machine worldwide that just collects money and can account to its writers on a much quicker
0: and probably slightly more efficient basis. Mm-hmm. Are you... Do you think more and more indies go down that road now?
1: I think you they, need. They, to. I
0: think. Well, I mean, as in you know, versus. <laughs> versus I guess going with. The, I was going to say BMG model, but BMG are pretty, pretty big themselves from a sub publishing. I mean, side. BMG have
1: got a lot of worldwide offices. Yeah. Um,
0: I think that. I think when you look at
1: digital and you look at collection of performance monies on, on, on Spotify and collection of sales streaming monies from from the likes of Spotify on a worldwide basis that makes it much harder to see the remit of having or having or the structure of having lots of sub publishers worldwide because obviously it's not as much territory by territory anymore. So you kind of the you know and there's all there's already kind of international Collections societies, uh, organisations like ICE that runs through the whole of Europe that collects all the digital money. So therefore, mm-hmm. and if most of your sales revenue is coming from streaming, like it does for most acts and certainly most publishers at the moment, then your well, then it's sort of the the, the sands are shifting. Yeah. So um, yeah. So but it makes but it makes sense for us to be with the major because mm-hmm. it just I personally think it offers the best of both worlds.
0: And it doesn't working with a major in that way for the admin side doesn't dilute doesn't affect the creative side of things or anything like that they don't suddenly turn around to you and start going we think you should be doing things a certain way or anything like that I've, only been, I've
1: only been doing it for two weeks um, so no I don't think so I think like you know the kind of Young Turks is obviously an incredible label company and brand as you were saying earlier so I think the idea that Sony ATV can be involved with something like that works so it's just a reciprocal relationship you know that we can we'll probably be bringing stuff to Sony ATV that Sony ATV might not bring themselves we'll probably be looking at at working with artists and writers a little bit earlier maybe than the Sony ATV Mm -hmm. A&R team are so I don't think we're going to be um they we're we're in business together because we both offer the, offer something that the other doesn't have. So I think on a creative level, Sony ATV will, you know, won't have that, that huge amount of input. You know, we and we on on our side of it, if we do deals with this, that are funded by Sony ATV, then we have to make sure, that, you know, well, at least some of them work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I mean, from a from a, an independent, you've kind of got a little bit more wiggle room. In there as well you just mentioned that you're going to be looking with to work with artists at a very a much earlier level mm-hmm. earlier stage which means mo- much more development which means more patience more time yeah and the deals that you're going to be doing will show that off as well yeah. you're I mean, not I going to be throwing money around no no, no we're all not going to sort of you either.
1: know the, the the point of i mean i came from a back i come when i worked at songs you know we offered if you're going to be in a position where you're going to build something that you know has to compete with all the other publishing companies, we're looking to build a proper publishing company, so therefore at some point we're going to have to be an option that goes up against the... You know, there will be times when we'll go up against the BMG or a Universal and, or a Cobalt or Downtown, and we have to offer something that those other companies don't, and the only thing that we can see and the thing that kind of was... You know, evident when I was speaking to the owner of Young Turks was that you can have the outreach of the of the major, and you can have the outreach that Young Turks provides in terms of all of the all of the great writers that we've got and the connections mm-hmm. that we've got internationally via Kaya, the owner, Milo, the head of ANR, myself. From you know, working in this business for fifteen years, we 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 know a lot of people out in the world, certainly on the creative side of things. Um, but then again, so do a lot of people. So we just. We're not going to be signing that much. That's our. That's going to be our sort of raison on true if you like isn't it. We'll, we'll look to sign sort of three or four things a year, and not be on. Okay. It. So that if a if not if a writer or an artist signs to us, then they're going to see us. They're going to be. They're going to have a relationship with us. Mm-hmm. And you know that's quite a hard thing to promise if you're a, a, a bigger company where individual rosters, as in each A and R person, is looking after maybe twenty writers. So obviously all of those twenty writers are not going to get the same creative service as as the other one which is totally fine that's how the the majors have to work and it's how mm-hmm. they operate and you know then, you know if i was going to be running universal music publishing i'd run it in the same way because you can you'd have to to be to offer a full creative service at one of those companies you would have to be hiring 50 60 more staff in the in the in the creative teams <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs>
0: How do you like doing things? How do you like working with artists and writers and producers?
1: Me personally, I one kind of the reasons why I think I've done well in publishing or, or kind of found an affiliation with it, I've, I've I worked in the record labels for, for about 10 years before moving across to publishing. And mm-hmm. I think what I've enjoyed about it is the fact that I can, for me personally, it suits the way that I work. And I have a relatively short attention span, right? So in my role at Songs was to you know oversee the A and R process, oversee the synchronization process, and also oversee the uh, international relations on the creative side. So I don't do anything on the admin administration side. Or yep. Copyright law uh, is like you know reading Chinese for me; it's very I don't understand it. But you know that's what people in business affairs departments are there for. <laughs> um, uh, and I kind of you know I enjoy the fact that with publishing you can you know, records you sign an artist, on as an A&R person you'll sign one or two artists a year and you'll put your heart and soul into those acts and it's a, you know, there's a lot of risk in there from the, in terms of the, how much, how much of the company's money you're spending, in terms of signing an act, recording them, mm-hmm. marketing them, touring them, all of those kind of things. With publishing, you know, we don't have that as level of investment um, and we don't have the level of return, so we sign a few more bits and pieces. And I like the fact that I can be working with a producer, a top line writer, an overall uh, external songwriter, an artist that needs collaborations on their project, or you know. And I just like the, the way of working that on the A&R side. It, it kind of keeps things fresh and interesting for me. And then I also, you know, overseeing the sync side of it as well. That also helps because if I'm bogged down in the A&R for one day, then I can
0: shift my attention to something completely different. But as in that A&R world, do you see yourself more as kind of a facilitator? I guess you're not necessarily in the studio, yeah, yeah. I think this is this would work better if you did it this way, yeah, yeah. but instead you're kind of going, you know, who you would benefit from meeting, you'd be much you'd benefit from going and I mean, I think, yeah, yeah yes, and person. no. I mean, I think that
1: would, I think if you sign an artist, if you sign an artist that is already signed to a record label and isn't necessarily working with too many other people or is concentrating on their own artist project then you know you understand that as the publisher you're you know that that creative a and r process is is being handled you're probably you're you might you're also probably signing it that's already on the record label because you feel that the team around it is pretty strong you feel that the artist is great you feel that the team around is pretty strong and there's a good chance that they'll be able to get it to the next level Mm -hmm. so of course your input at that point is is less and anyone who says differently is lying (laughs) <laughs> um, you will suggest something to the A&R person but having worked in records as well you know, you kind of, you don't want the, the vision of where the artist goes should come from the artist, possibly the manager and the A&R person alongside at the label and anyone else can offer suggestions and help but the, there'll be a finite vision and that will be, you know, orchestrated by the, the, the main two cre- creatives in, in that process in publishing, then if you're looking at developing a writer or signing an artist before records it's very very early then your creative process is is, is massive mm-hmm. you know you are kind of you are that first port of call and you're the person who's suggesting certain you know you, you might say that one song is stronger than another you might suggest that they can go in maybe working with another producer might um, help to sort of develop a sound or develop the, the songwriting so yeah you're much more involved i think if you're a publisher of a major act, then you're, yeah, you're more of a making suggestions and and seeing if you can... Do you yeah, think the s- lines are
0: blurring more and more? Do you reckon label A&R people are becoming more like publishing A&R people and vice versa?
1: Well, it's all writer-based at the moment. I mean, mm. if you look at the charts, you won't find anything that's written solely 100% by anybody. So yeah. it's all... Um, the, uh, the labels are probably leaning on the publishers more in the f- simple fact that they... Are in need of songwriters to help work with their artists. Whereas about ten years ago, you know, and the talk, especially when the sort of the guitar music scene was was much more um, dominating the charts than obviously. It was just about bands and published, stuff published like that. In that.
0: How is it working? Because I know if we go before, if we go at the very beginning of the last cycle of this sort of music when you had all the the nineties pop bands, you had songwriting. Briefs. Mm-hmm. It was very much, you know, labels would call. Have you got any songs for this new group that we're working with yeah. now? Now it's very much songwriter sessions. It's much more get the artists in with a producer and a couple of writers. Yep. Is it? I think everyone harder to... to get in with the certain people. Are, are, are there lots of cliques? It's not just an open call for. I'd say there's cliques. It's just, um,
1: I'd say certainly. A, the labels well i think you i think it's just seen as kind of a a a tier system if you kind of got your a-list writers Mm -hmm. your your a-list start artists will want to go in with the the big writers that have a proven track record of of creating hits that's not necessarily the most creative way of looking at it but i think personally you You normally see it's uh is there there a way
0: in for up-and-coming writers
1: there is and it's up-and-coming artists i mean it's kind of you you know but if when you're a writer struggling to get your first bit of recognition out there which is essentially having a cut on a record that is either minor minorly or majorly successful mm-hmm. that opens the doors to any writing session for the next year or two you know what I mean and then you just got to follow up with another success you know, mm-hmm. in that in that side of simple. It. but simple very easy <laughs> but uh, he kind of with the developing writers you know like I said I think there's not as much, Creativity in the process. From you know, if you're kind of, I don't know, if you're looking after Sigrid on Island Records, for example, mm-hmm. then you know they're going to want to be going. You know, most of the time, they'll go in with a certain level of, of caliber of or history of success, kind of style writer. Um, for me, it's you normally pick up a, a new writer or producer, and you get them working with newer up and coming acts. So acts that are, you know, if you've got a good writer that's got a couple of cuts on records then you look at artists that are creating a bit of a, a buzz around them as in like you know not necessarily an, an industry buzz but a kind of you know starting to create a little bit of a fan base and some numbers on spotify or you go to the acts on record labels which are more up and coming which haven't cemented their own status yet and you try and get your producers and writers working with those guys and they are got normally good producers and writers they come up in generations alongside the artists that are doing the same thing mm-hmm. so so that's how, how it works.
0: What does that conversation sound like when you're trying to get someone who's fairly unproven into a session with someone who's on the up? Do they usually have each other on their radar anyway? Yeah. Off, yeah or on, have yeah. You actually have you gone through a process whereby you've really had to effectively sell someone who you truly believe in to someone who... Well, Doesn't you're doing really it to be, you're doing it
1: with people that you already know and that will and that you trust and that they trust your relationship. I guess it's it's exactly the same as as what you had in sync. If somebody was sending you a bunch of stuff when you were, uh, you know, a music supervisor, mm-hmm. Danny, I imagine that there were some emails that you opened first, thinking these are more likely to. Hit the brief of what I was asking for, than yeah. from some other people. Mm-hmm. You might think these are kind of be a little bit off, or they'll just be sending something that's uh, that's coming out in the next two weeks. So that and never happens. And I, and I think <laughs> for me personally, my whole process in 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 working in the industry is always the same, and that is kind of creating strong relationships with fewer people is much better for me than yep. having lots of loose relationships with everybody you know there's a and so when i'm working with a writer or a producer then i will you know speak to the a people and, and find out what they've got going on and see who's you know what what artists they're working with or speak to the managers and find out what artists they've got that, are, that they're developing mm-hmm. and you know listen to that music and figure out which if any of my writers are the ones that are right for it. So therefore, if I know if I'm going to suggest something to somebody, the A&R person is going to go, well, he's not just trying to shoehorn in a pop writer into an electronic session. He wants to, you know, he's probably going to have thought this out a little bit and this guy's probably... And also the other thing is the the fact my writer would have been, or, you know, the writer that I'm developing would have been working with acts that are probably in a similar lane. And that they would have heard of. So if they have not heard of the writer, they, they could, you know, for example, if it's like a Sigrid, you could say, oh, they worked with Ray Morris and, and Ray and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you can, and they go, yep. okay, I can see the line where where this fits in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's kind of how it's done, I think. Holistically, you don't try and just shoot for the top. At the, at the... I think you've got to curate it. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not, some people will just try and fill their, you know, there, there are two ways of, of working with writers and there are different writers that work in different ways. Some writers will happily sit in 300 sessions a year and just churn it out and work with any pop writer or any artist that comes through or any other writer and just kind of, you know, and they, and they have that mentality to do that, which yeah. is incredible really. Um, and that's totally cool. If it works that way, then great, you know, and then every now and again, one of those will, will, will work well and that'll, that'll be that. Um, mm. and then there's other writers that prefer to work on projects that, um, that they feel that they can bring something to the party with, or there's more of a, a creative kind of recognition in there, and then so they'll work inherently with less acts, but then maybe we'll work more with each act. So mm-hmm. rather than doing one or two day session, they might work with an act for a week, mm-hmm. you know, and then try and, and be involved in the project from you know from the ground up. <laughs>
0: Why the music industry? Why do you? Why are you in the music industry? What What drew you to it back in the day? I don't. Well, just music,
1: I guess. I just kind of. I was. My dad was a record collector. He had nothing. To do. He was. He also. He, yeah. He wasn't. A, he wasn't um in the music industry. That I think there was, You know, a lot of people have ins to music. I didn't when I was younger, and, and that's. Uh, you know, I'd say it's probably actually it's probably fifty fifty if you look at the industry. There's some. It's either because. There's a family link, or they know somebody in there, and that's totally cool Do you as well. That's still the case? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think you kind of, you know, it's, but that's that's totally cool. I mean, I don't think there's anyone in the music industry that, or generally in, in the creative side of it, that isn't in there because they're massively passionate about mm-hmm. music. Do you know what I mean? I think that's that's always yeah. the case. So therefore, yeah, as long as, as long as you're into it, that's all right. Um, so I kind of, you know, I went to university, didn't study music or anything. Like that. I did zoology at, at Manchester, and then. Travelled around the world for a couple of years after that and got back at about, when I was about 22. And then I, my dad had an old copy of the Music Week directory, so I just, I thought I'd like to work in music, I'd love to be an A&R person, but I definitely, you know. Did you have any idea what that meant? No, not really. Mm. Not, really not really. Not not at all. And then I phoned, uh, I just phoned up a load of labels and publishers, um, and only one of them got back to me, which was a record label called Independiente, and they, uh that's just been bought just been bought yeah, just been so well, just sold. Been sold the catalog has yeah. been sold to concord yeah, yeah but it's it. been pretty inactive for a few years about 10 10 10 or 12 years um but yeah they needed they were a ind- strong independent they had the likes of um so solid crew travis embrace paul weller um <laughs> eclectic very eclectic really eclectic <laughs> label um you know it was run by a guy called Andy McDonald, that used to run Go Discs. Um, so he's, you know, he had a, a bit of a track record. But I just, um, I came in to help the marketing department, really, because they, you know, it was the middle of summer and they had a lot of people going on holiday. And they were the only people who got back to me. I turned up to the sort of interview kind of thing in a suit. So they all laughed at me. <laughs> but then I was in there the next week helping out. And then about, I just kind of,
0: I just got on with the with the guys. Do you over reckon there. you were just lucky with timing for that? They were the only only company that But that's what I mean. (laughs) When you sent your letters off saying that you're interested, did you just hit the magic time when they were going, we need someone to come in?
1: Yeah. Here's a letter. (laughs) Probably. And also, I think that they were probably... I think unless you're within the industry, then they probably weren't as, as well known a label. So if I was sending stuff over, over to Sony and Universal and Island Records, it's big big like, you know, stack CVs and stuff, must be like the eightieth person that day to get involved, get in touch with them about work experience. So, and I actually, I think I called them and just got and got through to, you know, the the, the sort of office manager, and she was like, "Yeah, your timing's good. I, we need someone to come in." So yeah, that was that was definitely fortunate. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of hung out with them, and because it was an independent, it was yeah, I was supposed to help in the marketing department, but obviously there was lots of stuff to do everywhere. So I just kind of made teas and logged in old kind of DAT recordings into the computer system. And but I kind of, I got on well with the, with the guy who run it and, um, I didn't know that he ran it at the time, so I just used to walk into his office and have a chit-chat every now and again. <laughs> didn't know he owned the company, I was quite relaxed around him, which I may, maybe looking back on it, I might not have been, if I'd known he owned the company. And then, um,
0: But I mean, it says something about him as well, actually that, because not everybody who runs companies or owns companies, especially who'd been doing it at the time that he had been, would yeah. have been that welcoming to just this, yeah, this I mean, new guy, this new kid coming in and just... Having a chit chat. Well Some they were in India, and stuff. it was a
1: much more of a you know. I mean, it wasn't a huge staff there. It's probably only like twenty or so people. So no, it was a yeah, it was good. But they offered me a job as an A and R scout after about a month of, of working there, and then cool. that was that was it. And then it was just running around scouting, looking for new bands and looking for new artists um, to try and. Did you find? Who did I find? Who did I find? Who did I sign? Um, I think the first one that I wanted to sign that didn't was Kaiser Chiefs and then I signed an app called Blackbud, which which uh, didn't do very well. <laughs> I think my my history in music is I haven't necessarily signed a lot of acts that have gone on to be successful but I've always been trusted by owners to work with acts that have been. So like for example Andy sent me over to New York to, to, to attend the mix sessions for Travis when he couldn't make it which was a bit odd to send a 23-year-old with very little experience to sort of a a big band mix session um but I guess he sort of trusted my ears to be able to tell him that it was going well but
0: even then it kind of suggests that publishing was always going to be the destination from then because if you were more trusted with working with the current roster and being in those sessions, as opposed to going out and about and trying to find the next big band. To yeah, well, I mean, well, we did, we did both, of course. And then it was, you know, we
1: were kind of, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe, I'd possibly, I don't know. It's a weird point? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, just, just to
0: me, for someone who spent most of my time on the rights owner side of things and the publishing side, mm. I and I know a lot of people. In both sides, there's there is a difference between yeah. the, the type of person that is publishing A and R and the type of person that is record label A and think there's
1: a I think there's a difference in the I think a lot of the record A and R people kind of there's a a sort of a desperation and a, and a real hunger there to to really go out and, and win that deal. Whereas I was uh, probably. Um, I wouldn't say relaxed about it but i mean i was always on stuff early so the independence so was tricky we, we missed out on a couple of acts that you know would have would have changed the the, the,
0: the way that company then through went the fault them. of the label or I, just i mean because somebody else put uh, a, a zero on the end of a checkbook
1: one was because of the one was because they blew us out of the water on a deal and then and then sometimes because, you know, there was a, a more compelling option. You know, if you were an independent label in the early 2000s going for an act and then Excel are going for it as well, you can pretty much shrug <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. your shoulders and walk off to the next one. You know, yeah. so it's kind of, you know, it's a bit of an, an interesting one. But then I moved from Independiente um, kind of for that reason. And then I'd been there for three or three or four years and was ready to, to move on to the next challenge and wanted to go to the majors. And I got a job at EMI Records mm-hmm. as a senior A&R guy. And then... In mm. its pomp? Yes, but then it kind got of. taken out by terra firma about uh, two months later.
0: So, <laughs> so were you in that?
1: I was in that world Well, how was that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was weird. Because I'd, I'd, I'd left an independent where we'd signed a, a, a couple of things but was you know, it wasn't as easy to sign stuff at Independiente as I thought it would be at a major. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to the major and the major got sold and there was a signing kind of hiatus for ten months. So I arrived and was given a, a couple of projects to A and R and source remixes for other A and R projects and that was that's kind of what I did. There were very little really that but, I, I did mean in were my you first caught were you AMI caught Records. up in
0: the effectively the cost cutting? Yeah, yeah I was bit. well EMI
1: Records was then made defunct. It was like there was four labels at EMI wasn't there. There was Virgin, EMI, mm-hmm. Parlophone and Angel and EMI and Angel as part of that process of they lost forty members of staff, mm. you know, pretty much on one day after a 10-month process, it was handled pretty badly. Um, and then anybody that was left over from the EMI labels and the Angel labels that they wanted to keep was then pushed into either, or well, well, put into Parlophone or Virgin. So mm-hmm. I moved across to Virgin at that point. Right. So, I mean, I haven't done anything, so I, didn't, I had no reason to lose my job at that point. But, I have not wasted any money. Yeah.
0: But, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> nicely, but, but that was when, you know, a lot of artists, the people that they'd been working with for some time all just got pushed out the door and then you kinda of got artists got lumbered with not lumbered with, but got handed over to new people and then the artists weren't that happy about that as well. So well, it was uh, Yeah, I mean I
1: think the majority Was it
0: fun going into work every morning? <laughs>
1: or was it a bit fraught?
0: <laughs> it must have been fraught. It was a bit
1: weird. I mean I kind of it, it was probably it was it was probably different for me than it was for most of the people that had worked there for a long time. I kind of felt very like i wasn't on, i mean i got to know all the people that worked there but i wasn't i haven't been there for long enough right to you know what i mean it was like literally two months into my job over there that terra the announcement was made that terra firma had bought it so for me it's a bit like oh fuck, that's a bit weird you know kind of there's always been EMI has always been the, the sort of subject of rumors over well, ever since I started, but long before I started of, mm-hmm. of various takeovers or mergers. Um, but then it uh, officially happened two months after I started working there. But I think if you were there for a long time before, then yeah, it would have been a bit odd. And because Terra Firma took so long, they took so long to kind of assess the whole business that, you know, there's a 10 month waiting period where nothing most really members happen. of staff within those companies didn't know if they were going to be having a job. So it's quite hard to sort of galvanise the team at that point. Yeah, I So, it'd be better. I mean, like for me, I didn't have that much to do because <laughs> I couldn't sign anything, which is what I'd been bought in to do yeah. in the first place.
0: Um, and it's kind of silly that because that's what labels need to do in order to yeah, but continue then, functioning. I, I mean, I think the thing is, they've
1: kind of, they wouldn't, it wasn't like there was an official hiatus, it was just like nobody on earth would have signed to an EMI company during that period mm-hmm. until they knew what the outcome was going to be yeah. of that and our person the record label everything around it why would you You wouldn't sign to a company where you didn't know that you know the future was very much unwritten
0: yeah and then you moved on to songs well i moved to virgin well, okay i
1: stayed i stayed at MI i stayed at, went went to virgin signed an act called hockey at virgin um, I remember Hockey. And then... Well, Hockey actually did quite well. On a, in, they, did, they didn't They did do well... They didn't do brilliantly in any territory, but they did well in lots of territories. So they actually sold cumulatively quite a lot of records. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was good. I enjoyed working with them. They are a good band. And then um, I kind of like... I think I just... Uh, there was a point where I got to 30, and I was a little bit... And this probably goes back to maybe why I was more suited for publishing. I was getting a little bit tired of just being you know chasing acts going into the competition to try and sign an act and then you know if you sign only, only working one or two acts per year and i was getting a little bit i kind of wanted to know more about how the industry worked um i would say that me and the, the new boss at the time had we got on well personally but not necessarily creatively so we kind of we, we had an agreement where I stayed on as a consultant at Virgin but it allowed me to then go and do other stuff mm-hmm. so I started consulting for Live Nation I started consulting for a few music supervision companies which is I was working alongside the guys at Platinum Rye for a bit mm-hmm. um, I managed an artist uh, as well and then it was in that period which was to kind of the two-year period of just getting to know more about the industry and getting a bit more excited about it again yeah that songs music publishing got in touch via a couple of people and, okay. they, and they needed somebody to set them up in the UK that could work the rosters they American they American independent publishing company, so they needed somebody that could work write a writer roster in the UK mm-hmm. try and get cuts on UK records and work the entire roster from a music supervision synchronization standpoint so obviously you know getting the music out to ad agencies film supervisors games people all that kind of stuff yep so yeah and that yeah and th- at that point I would say that's the I'd say that's one thing, that I. if there's one element of what I do that is different to other people, it's the fact that I kind of have a a fairly strong foothold in both A&R and music supervision and synchronisation. And there's not many people that know the amount of people or have that vast um, network of contacts. I think that's probably what I garnered over the years, that two year period that enabled me to do that, definitely. yeah. Yeah.
0: What was it like being one guy hocking a, a company that very few people had
1: heard about? Nobody knew him. Nobody. I never knew him. And, um, and, and Songs was a, a name that was kind of instantly forgettable.
0: <laughs> Even, yeah. It's an interest. I, I, get, I, I like the that i get the thought process
1: well songs music publishing was uh yeah it was like it made complete sense but it was kind of a little bit too uh <laughs> a little bit too obvious and it, <laughs> you know but then they then about three years later they um they had a record company which they called records nice so then it was, so then it was songs and records and then it made perfect sense but it was like yeah um, See what they did there? um yeah i'm not sure how long they took to think of that one either um <laughs> Uh, uh, at the time how was it because was... the company was
0: quite an aggressive company uh, it wasn't was it? i mean it, they they signed some pretty well, heavy to- hitters. yeah
1: when when well they started off in 2004 and had a lot of rock bands so stuff that you'll probably know like every time i die and horse the band and you know the, the guy who had, who owned it uh, it was a billionaire's son but he also had a rock history as well so mm-hmm. he was in a band called judge um so yeah he he signed a lot of rock acts and then a lot of american kind of independent acts like two gallants and whatnot and then around 2010 and 11 they there was money at the company so they signed a few more flagship signings so they did a deal for bright eyes they did a deal for q-tip and they did a deal for i'm not going to get into ins and outs of it but they did a deal that repre- was able to represent pharrell williams catalogue on the sync side of things um so at that point they suddenly had a a you know, a roster that was more globally recognisable. And they had some writers that were coming up through the ranks as well, like MNDR, who was doing well. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was the point where they needed somebody in the UK to to
0: actively work the roster. And they also didn't do what a lot of companies do these days, was just go and buy a UK company. No. Because that seemed to be, I mean, not necessarily, but in the past few years anyway, a lot of American companies... I'm thinking downtown Yeah, 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 downtown gone, and spirit. You know, we want, want to do me. this, we're going to go and buy a UK company. Yeah, because it gives something that's that.
1: actively up and running. The, the song's ethos was definitely more of a, uh, well, by Matt Pincus's, uh his, his line was always writer by writer, employee by employee. They weren't looking to, okay. to to build anything massively quickly. They weren't looking, and they didn't want a roster that was enormous. And similarly to what I was saying about what we were trying to do with Young Turks, mm-hmm. the ethos was definitely much look after you know sign, sign the writers and work them yeah I mean? and work them as hard as you can to to to, to enable them to have a career and doing what they love doing do you know what i mean success it doesn't necessarily mean being top of the charts Success no, no, no. can mean just being able to sustain your life it's nice to hear someone actually songs, say that you know? and and success is dependent on on a lot of factors you know if you sign an act for £10,000, then, you
0: know, you can be successful with it on a much smaller level. And is that what good? Matt thought? Was that his remit? Was that his way of looking at I things? I don't know what Matt
1: thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like Matt Pinker. I think, yeah, but I think Matt was,
0: Matt wanted to make every deal work.
1: That was, that right. was, that was. And situation. that's quite
0: a breath of fresh air. That's going low. We're not going to pay over the odds for anyone just to get them in. We're not going to do... No, you know. I
1: mean, they, they paid, they worked, the songs worked in a very different way. After they, When I joined them, they had 14 people in, uh, in based in New York and LA, but mostly New York. Um, and then and then it was me in London. And then probably about two years later, we made our first hire in, in the UK, which was a sync guy that you know, Tom McDonald. Mm-hmm. And then we, uh, they signed Diplo fairly shortly after I joined. Which was a very good signing, I, obviously he was great at the time, but nothing compared to what he is now um, then we also did over the next quarter of two or three years we like the weekend yep. at lord
0: um that that was a fairly... lord was a massive deal that but was it was a coup. Like, but it
1: was the way that they did deals in the u s at that time, and it's not just songs is the u s operated in a very different way with publishing the fact that Publishing was done a lot later for a lot of the time, and there are artists in the charts that were unpublished, which is unheard of in the UK. In the UK, signings have always generally been done a little bit earlier, um, maybe a bit more based on sometimes based on kind of hype and prediction rather than actual.
0: Sales. Is that the reason? Do you just think that the, the US people just don't get hyped up about stuff? They're not going to open the checkbook. I think it's if a bigger it's territory,
1: like- isn't it? So you kind of you know you're dealing with probably about twenty UKs in one in one place. Yep. And so and then and then there's a bit so there's obviously a much larger amount of acts to look at. And mm-hmm. I think there's at that point sort of independent the independent radio network was much more of a, a, a sign as to how acts would do. So acts in historically in the US have, have often come through a very independent ethos or an independent model and then when they're inverted commas ready to make the next step, they move up to a major. So, yeah. I don't know, like, a good example would be something like Death Cab for Cutie when they did, you know, first two or three records of an independent and then they jumped up to Atlantic. So, you know, in publishing, it's it that, that was certainly the, the way it was at that time, in t- around 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, an act like, Lord, she was number one. So, she was number one with Royals in the US when she was signed to song So, yes, it was a big deal. But, again, what they like to do in America is they'll sign a big deal when they know when the risk is lower. Yeah, we signed it for X million dollars, but she was number one. And it, yeah. was, and it was always a question. It that X million dollars never, is going to come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that was, I think the American model in, at that time probably was... It's arguably, not a bad way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, it's arguably a little bit more mathematical than you'd like it to be in a creative world, but um, it worked for those bigger
0: acts. When you are in then, an industry that was, I think, it, so this was what, mid yeah, this was pre-streaming, so
1: yeah, you're talking about an industry that was in decline, really. So was it yeah. still
0: in decline, or had it just kind of started to plateau out? Was this kind of 2012, 13, 14, that sort of area? So the, returns it was kind are still, of, the
1: returns were still low, yeah. so it wasn't... Um,
0: you're not about to just suddenly go, let's have half a million quid on yeah. a, on a and hit and hope, is it?
1: Yeah, and I think also the other thing with American deals is the... I mean, if you get into the sort of... When you, you analyse the the revenues that you generate through... Performance play on American radio that can be really big. If you have a big success at radio, then you know you're going to make a lot of money on publishing just performance alone. In the UK, you know performance money is pretty low. You know, so when we're trying to sign stuff in the UK, generally, I kind of personally look to kind of like I said with hockey. Weirdly, like I would prefer to have an act that sells a good amount worldwide than one that is just located purely in the UK because I know that if it doesn't get, because UK deals can be very big, mm-hmm. can be you know, slightly over expensive one would say, I'm sure your other publishers would, would, would appreciate, would, would agree with that on this podcast series. And I think you've got, you know, and you see you're kind of throwing all your eggs into one basket. So I think it's, for me, it's better to, to look at an act or a writer that can work well in different territories, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Some of the acts you brought into songs?
1: Songs, we signed a bunch of
0: stuff. We had, um,
1: I guess, we, the first proper sign, we did a couple of bits, we did a couple of signs. It took a while to get the strategy in the UK, uh, tr- well, signed off essentially by the Americans, because like I said, we did deals in a very different way. Mm-hmm. But when we did that, we brought in another ANR guy, Kenny McGough, who was um, from EMI Publishing. Um, and was a really good friend of mine anyway and you know with with Kenny in the in the company we started to you know the strategy was defined the budgets were defined and we um we, we started we set about signing stuff so we that was probably around 2015 and we signed Barnes Courtney that was on Virgin and Capital Records who again has done really well internationally but not great in the UK but sync wise he been, killed it massive sync artist of the year last year for was. the Music Week, Week Awards earned, earned a, a few night.
0: quid out of Burns didn't he uh,
1: Barnes did very very well um, you know across two songs he probably made over a million in publishing alone. Mm. So, like, you know, that was, and that was good because he'd also written the majority of those songs I think he had 90% on one and 70 on the other but you know that wasn't the primary reason that we, we signed him but we knew that we had a shot he'd mm-hmm. already been on a, the trailer for that film Burnt with mm-hmm. Bradley Cooper terrible film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Harvey Weinstein as well. We used to, we used to sing about Harvey Weinstein oh, liking okay. Barnes. It would stop that one. it has been after the clear Me Too campaign. Um, yes. So, yeah, we had Barnes Courtney. We signed uh, Lowered Atlantis, The Rock Act, um, mm-hmm. because Low Atlantis, A, it's always good to have a rock act as a publisher, and Lowered Atlantis, Mike, also worked on other acts outside of that so he's had a cut on Five Seconds of Summer we'd got him a cut on a Japanese pop record
0: fun fact I got in touch with their manager in my first year at Peer Music because I found out that they were unpublished right so was that was Jamie with, at the time or? no it was before Jamie got on board on stuff and I got in touch and I got a very very curt: we're not interested in publishing at all email back because I was kind of looking at or thinking in yeah, yeah. exactly the same way. It's good to have a rock act.
1: Well, yeah, well, no, there. And also, like, I
0: think the, the good, and Mike's Mike's uh, Mike was a good Mike's,
1: Mike's a really strong writer. That's mm-hmm. the first and foremost reason that you'd want to sign anybody to a publishing deal. He's a really, really good writer. And I think when you've got one of those rock acts in the UK, you kind of, you know, when you do something a bit more, when you take when you take the creative, when you you look at something creatively first and foremost, and then you have to look at it on a business level because you can't just do everything based on what you like and what you feel you have to look at how the whole thing works as a as a unit mm-hmm. you know? and we looked at uh, load atlantis like all rock bands in the uk they have a very very loyal
0: yeah and oh, very, yeah, was... very well
1: defined fan base i you know got into exactly i where?
0: got in touch with them because i was a fan this was probably 2011
1: you you look at Umi at 6 you you can predict almost to within five single units of how many albums they're going to sell each campaign <laughs> and how many singles are going to shift yep. as well so You know, so that was, but then obviously with London Atlantis, you had all the all the extra work that Mike was, a doing and b up for doing more. So that was a no-brainer. We signed an act called Loyal from Brighton, who were signed to um, Goodyears, uh, another kind of sort of uh, electronic collective, who um, who have just signed their album deal now actually, Um, and then we signed. Who else did we sign? Frank Colucci songwriter uh Glenn Roberts songwriter um we signed an act called everyone you know which had just started to do their first stuff on RCA we signed another act called Skinny Living that was signed to RCA um how do you reckon all these acts are going to do on Cobalt
0: they'll
1: be fine I mean uh, they're I mean they, they're they good I mean Ken, Kenny moved across to Cobalt okay after the sale anyway okay. so that was um you know it, that wasn't for me, but it was. It was. It was definitely good for Kenny, and he's. Mm-hmm. You know, and Kenny's having a good time over there. So they'll, they'll be all right, and they're kind of. You know, he's a. He, they're the right person. Do you know, what I mean, he's. A, he's. A, he will. He will look after his
0: roster. Well, if he's, if they've gone with. <laughs> the roster has gone with someone who yeah. put it together yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean,
1: and also, you know, Cobalt, on a, Cobalt are a good company. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're
0: good people. They're just a
1: different a, company, they're a bigger company. They're so a different company, they're a bigger company, and I think the the thing with a company, you know, when songs are sold, it was, you know, I've enjoyed doing all the aspects that we've spoken about in my, in my job, so mm-hmm. I wanted to move somewhere where I could continue to do that or do it again, you know. And I think with songs, we've probably felt all of us in the UK office especially, but probably in the US as well, it got sold after 14 years, It's quite quick. Mm-hmm. So we all feel that we kind of like had a few more years left to, well, you, you knew it was going to get sold at some point. It's an independent company owned by the son of the guy who invented the hedge fund. So you you weren't blind to the fact that this was a company that was going to be set up to sell at some point. Mm-hmm. I just don't think anyone expected it to go after 14 years, maybe more like 20. Right. Um, so I think we all felt that there was still a. that We were kind of certainly in the UK. It's like we were just getting going. We built a good reputation for ourselves. We'd signed some good acts. We'd signed some good acts that were being in development to come out. I think everyone you know is a. It's a brilliant act that are on RCA and and with the guy that you know ran Ministry of Sound. They're kind of in that in that lane as well. So that that could be a fairly good one for next year. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it happens, that's fine. So then you, you move on.
0: You're obviously in a positive frame of mind about music publishing. You wouldn't have started up or gone back into it if you weren't. <laughs> what is What's the thing moving forward what you know in the next 12 to 18 months what are you really really looking forward to the most about the new endeavor about kind of still working in in this area of the music business
1: i'm looking forward to getting stuck into working with new writers and new producers you know it's kind of that's it's funny you kind of i've been doing this for a while now and like starting a new job everybody and this this isn't just in music this is in every industry everyone starts a new job and goes Oh fuck! They're gonna find me out. They're gonna realise I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> no, it's not just me that <laughs> thinks like that. God! And I don't believe anybody goes into a new job without that because it kind of drives you on. Do you know what I mean? So you can't rest on your on your past successes. So, mm-hmm. um, and so you have that period of time. You know, I had a bit of period of time off, just sort of, which was very nice. Watched a lot of the World Cup and took some time out and just you know waited for the not waited for the right opportunity, but wanted to, was talking to to find trying to find the right opportunity and, mm-hmm. and did with Young Turks. And then the first couple of weeks you start doing the job and then you and then you invariably get to meet a new writer that you hadn't heard about or you hear a new song that you hadn't heard by an artist that you hadn't heard before, and then you get excited and then you like then you realise why you're doing it again. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of the, all those other things that come into it are important, you know, running the running the running a company and building a business. Yes it is a business, of course it is. But the one thing that drives I think everybody in the creative sector is that they suddenly come across something that they hadn't come across before and it fills them with excitement and energy and that's you know and there's a couple of things that i've you know listening to at the moment i'm you know wake up and all right cool how are we gonna how are we gonna make sure that i can work with these acts you know and that's the thing that drives it and you know the the, the industry is ever changing it's never you know it's like it's i don't know where it will go next after streaming or how the streaming model will will change and and how the you know the music all-encompassing websites that, no doubt, a Google or an Amazon or Apple are looking to, to build and and work on. I don't know mm-hmm. how that's going to affect how it works going forward, but it's always changing. You know, that's changed. I mean, from since I've be been doing to it now. from mini CDs to mini discs, back to vinyl, <laughs> MP3s, then now streaming. You know, it's always there's always something new isn't there. Bring back the mini disc.
0: <laughs> Cheers, man. Good. Oh, do you? Nice. As always, massive thank you to my guest this week, Gerard Phillips, for giving me the time to sit down and have a chat As with everybody else on the pod, really hope to get the opportunity to sit down with him again, especially once he's really, really got involved with the Young Turks project. He's now, what, probably about four or five months in, so it'd be great to get him back on after he's done at least the first full year to find out how that's been going. You can email me at behindthebusinesspod at gmail.com. To just get in touch, I've had some really nice supportive emails that have already been starting to come in. If you'd like to ask me any questions, if you'd like to get any questions to any of the guests, please do send them in via the email. You can also follow the pod, follow me on Instagram at Behind the Business Pod, as well as me on Twitter, which is at Danny Champion. I think that'll do you for this week, episode 20. We've got a few more still to come for this series. So watch out, watch this space, and I'll see you on the other side.